Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 7. We're going through the book of Romans chapter by chapter and in many cases verse by verse. We want to pick up with chapter 7 in, uh, in Romans tonight. It's two parts that make up this chapter. The first uh, six verses are uh, Paul's announcement by the Holy Ghost of uh, really it's the crux of his ministry. It's everything that separated Paul's ministry from, uh, from others of his day. And it, um, uh, it's the very reason that he was persecuted uh, by the Jews uh, in the manner that he was. Then in chapter, chapter 7, beginning in verse 7 down through the end of the chapter, down through verse 25, Paul gives us a little bit of his, uh, his own experience in how he discovered some of the things that he's announcing and declaring in the first six verses. So we'll start in uh, chapter 7, verse 1. I'm reading from the King James. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. Now, um, in order to understand what he's referring to and how this connects with the things that he's already said, this connects to chapter 6 and verse 14. The last, um, well, verses 15 through 22 of chapter 6 were uh, an explanation uh, really kind of a parenthetical discourse about how not to take our freedom from uh, uh, from sin uh, as a license to continue in sin. So really Paul is writing in connection with what he just said in chapter 6 and verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under the law. King James says the law, the word the is not there. For you are not under law but under grace. Then he starts off in chapter 7 and verse 1. And there's a word that's missing here. The, the words know ye not really has to do with ignorance. It means uh, to be ignorant. It's the, uh, uh, the, the verb or the phrase that would relate to, to being ignorant. So when he says, for you are not under law but under grace, he then starts off with saying or. Now, I don't know why the King James translators left that out, but it's there in the, uh, the, the original text. It says, or are you ignorant, brethren? In other words, the points that he's about to make are going to tie into the things that he's just said about not being under law but under grace. And he's going to prove it very simply and very clearly. Now we know that um, a couple of things about Paul and the Romans. We know that Paul's never been to Rome. We know that the churches that are there in Rome are, are um, spiritual grandchildren, if you will, of Paul. We know that uh, several of the people that he makes mention of that uh, have uh, churches in their homes um, in the city or throughout the city of Rome were people that were educated and um, uh, became Christians under Paul's ministry. And so these are second-generation believers from Paul's original time out in the mission field. Um, but he's never been there. And so he's going to tell some things, and, and one of the reasons that the book of Romans is, is unique is because he's going to write some things that he preached in other places when he started the churches. Like, for example, in the church at Ephesus, he started that church. And so the things that he preached the first three and a half years when he was there in Ephesus, the longest that he was anywhere, we don't know what he preached. We just know what he wrote back to them in the letters that he wrote. Same thing when he was in the region of Galatia and started several churches in Galatia in the cities of Lystra and Derby and others. He preached there. He was there for months, and he preached there. Well, he taught some of these things. We have to assume that he taught some of the things that he's writing to the Romans about because they've never heard him preach. Now, Paul's pretty well known, maybe the most famous person of his day because of, um, if for nothing else, because of the trouble he stirs up in every town that he goes to. I say the trouble he stirs up. He's really not the one stirring up the trouble, but trouble seems to follow him wherever he goes. And so everybody knows about him. He's a threat to the political system. And so the, the city magistrates and administrators, everybody knows about Paul. 
And so as a result, there are a lot of things that are spoken about Paul and rumors and slanderous things that are spoken about Paul and, and told about him that have no basis in fact, no basis in the truth. And particularly where the Romans are concerned, he has to overcome some of the things that they may or may not have heard about him that were being spoken of throughout the world by telling them the truth and how things really are. That's why we have some of the records of, uh, uh, or some of the doctrine in the book of Romans that we don't have any other, in any of the other letters that Paul wrote. So Paul is going to make an argument, argue his case like a lawyer, and say, as uh, Romans 6, 14 says, for you're not under law but under grace, not under the law. It's not the law, meaning the law of Moses. He's saying there is no principle, there is no commandment, there is no principle of law unto God that you are under. You instead are under the grace of the finished work of Jesus as your righteousness and as your right standing. And then he's going to call them into question about what they know about life. Not all of the believers there in Rome are Jews. We know that. There are a lot of Gentiles that he makes mention of and and says uh, salute and say hello to and so forth. But we do know that there are a lot of Jewish believers because many of the people that were uh, saved under Paul's ministry that started some of these home churches, or we assume that they did, were Jews. So we know that Judaism is known somewhat throughout Rome and the Roman churches. So he says, or are you ignorant, brethren? For I speak to them that know the law. Now here again, the, the word the is not there. He's not talking about the law of Moses yet. He will in a verse or two, but he's not talking about the law of Moses. He's saying, I know that you know how law works. Now, how do they know? Well, he's talking about human law. He's not talking about laws unto God. Because up until this point in time, up until Jesus came on the scene, the Jews, the children of Israel, were the only ones that had any law under God. Nobody else in the world had one. So nobody else in the Gentile world would not know what laws under God were about. But he's talking about generally how the law works. Now, they're under Roman authority, and everybody under Roman authority knows how the laws of Rome work. And so he's going to make mention of things that they know of. I speak to them that know the law or how the literally how the law works how that the law again human law not the law of moses how that human law has dominion over a man as long as he lives everybody knows that don't you i mean if somebody dies they're not under the law of rome anymore they're out from uh, out from under the reach of the roman government and it would pretty much take death to put you out of the reach of the roman government at that point in time and that's what paul is making the point now notice what example he uses to prove the point He says, for the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband. Now, what law is she talking about? He's not talking about the law of God. He's talking about human law. He's talking about the law of marriage. Now, notice he didn't say for the man that has a husband or the woman that has a wife. The universally understood law of marriage is man and woman. Now, whatever you think about that, that's what it says. Whatever the church world thinks about that, that's what it says. And that's the example that Paul uses. Everybody understands how the marriage law works. Not a marriage law unto God, but just the marriage law. This is how it worked in Rome. This is how it worked in Greece. This is how it worked in every kingdom on the face of the earth. For the woman that has a husband is bound by the law, the marriage law, to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. Well, everybody knows that. Everybody understands that's how it works. And that's what Paul uses as the example for not being under law. And he'll talk about, tie that in, swing that around to talk about the law of God or the law of Moses. He goes on in verse 3, says, So then, if while her husband lives, she is married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. Can't be married to two people at once. 
But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, meaning the marriage law, not the law of God, but the marriage law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. In other words, death ends the marriage relationship according to the law so that she's free to be married to another. Now, that's the point Paul is going to use to talk about how we were under the law or or many of the Jewish believers there in the church at Rome were under the law. But when the law was annulled through the death of Jesus, then we were able to enter into another relationship and that relationship is Christ. Verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, there's a lot of stuff in this verse that we need to make mention of real quickly. But first of all, notice the word also. The word also means two things here. It means in the same way that the wife is not no longer bound by the law to her husband if he dies, so in the same manner... You're no longer bound to the law of God or the law of Moses through the death of Jesus. But the also also refers to chapter 6 and verse 2. Chapter 6 and verse 2, Paul says, How shall we that died to sin live any longer therein? In other words, he's saying you're not only dead to sin, you not only died to sin through the work of Jesus, you died to the law. Now, folks, this is a big announcement. We take it for granted because we don't know too much about the law of Moses. We have some residual effect of the law of Moses in the way that it's permeated and and affected our thinking about relationships with God and how things work and so forth. But the people that were under the law of Moses had been under that law for 1,500 years. And they were delivered under that law by God himself under penalty of death. So Paul is making a huge announcement here. He is making an announcement that says that thing that held you bound, that thing that was given to you by God himself, those divine commandments, those don't pertain to you anymore. And that's why the Jews wanted to kill Paul. This is huge. We don't take it as such because we don't have the same experience or come from the same point of view as they do, but this is huge. It's a tremendous announcement. So he says... Again, in verse uh, verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law. You're not only dead to sin, your relationship with sin is ended through the death of Jesus, but you're dead to the law through the body of Christ, or by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead. Now, notice he doesn't say even to him that hung on the cross. See, folks, just like there are two men, God's principle of two men, the first man, Adam, And we were all in Adam and therefore guilty because of his sin that he committed as the federal head of mankind. God's second man is Jesus who provides righteousness unto us, not through our own actions, but through the one act of sacrifice that Jesus uh, made on the cross. But that's not the Jesus. That's not the Christ that we're joined to. That's not the Christ that we're to be married to. That's not the Christ that's going to provide deliverance from the body of sin that he's going to talk about the rest of the chapter. The Christ that we're to be married to is the risen Christ. Folks, the one that hung on the cross died. I want to let this sink in. We think casually about Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus died. He was not raised again the same person. He was the firstborn among many brethren, the Bible says. He was the first begotten of many brethren. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised a new man. He died as the sin sacrifice for mankind. He was raised again as the conqueror. 
That's why the Bible says God gave him a name that's above every name, a name that he didn't have when he was here on the earth. We have this this romantic idea about uh, being joined to Jesus while he was here on the earth, and we see the Jesus that was here on the earth that did miracles and um, multiplied the loaves and the fishes and walked on the water and did all the great things. And it's great to think about that, and it's great to use him as an example of how a righteous man should operate here on the earth. But that's not the Jesus that you're joined to. That's the Jesus that died. You're joined to the Jesus that was raised again by the Spirit of God, not according to his own works, not according to his own worth, not according to his own righteousness. He was made to be sin. He laid down his righteousness and was made to be sin. He was raised again in the righteousness of the Father God, which is the same righteousness that you have. That's the one that we're married to. That's the one that we're joined to in a relationship that is very much like a marriage relationship. We used to be married in an old, a terrible old thing that took us down the hill. Now we're married to somebody that's seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's the life that we're now supposed to live. Now, why did we die to sin? Why did they die to, why did we die to sin? Why did we die to the law? Why did we do these things? Notice the end of verse 4, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Please notice something, folks. The Bible is saying very specifically that nobody in the Old Testament could or did bring forth fruit unto God. You couldn't if you were an Adam. You couldn't if you were an unrighteous man or a woman. You could not bring forth fruit unto God. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, what about Hebrews chapter 11 where it talks about the Hall of Fame? Well, what is it? What is that chapter? It's the Hall of Fame of faith, not the Hall of Fame of actions. It's the Hall of Fame of those who went beyond Adam's bondage and the bondage that was upon mankind because of Adam's sin and believed God's word independent of the circumstances and in many cases in impossible situations. That's what people are identified for in the Old Testament. And that's the only identification there is. That's the only acclaim that anybody gains from the Old Testament. And that is simply believing God's word, not something they did themselves. You could not bring forth fruit unto God before you were born again. So we're dead to sin and we're also dead to the law that we might bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, doesn't say in the body, we're all in the body. In the flesh, is talking about the unsaved. When we were in the flesh, chapter 8, about verse 6, I think it is, is going to tell us, but you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be the spirit, if the spirit of Christ is in you. So the, in the flesh, he's talking about is a condition, absent of the Holy Spirit, ruled by the body alone, still in Adam. So he says, when we were in the flesh, the motions, literally passions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. What is it telling us? Same thing I just said a minute ago. It was impossible and is impossible for the unsaved to bring forth any fruit unto God. The only thing that the unsaved can ever do produces death. That's it. What about the Hall of Fame of Faith guys? They didn't do it in and of themselves. They simply took God at his word. Folks, that's why the blessing of Abraham belongs to us because we're to follow his example of faith. We're not supposed to follow his righteousness. Don't start calling your wife, your sister to get out of trouble. That's what he did. Don't take your servant's handmaid or your wife's handmaid 
and have a child with her. Those are not things we're supposed to follow after Abraham. The only thing we're supposed to follow after Abraham is his faith. His willingness to accept God's word in the face of impossible circumstances. That's it. And if we'll do that, the blessing of his blessing, the blessing of Abraham will come on the Gentiles, will come on you and me. For when we were in the flesh, the motions or passions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now, we're not in the flesh anymore. We've still got a body to contend with, but we're not in the flesh. We're in the spirit, the Bible says. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Now it's interesting because he says the reason that we died to the law is so we could bring forth fruit. The reason we were discharged from the law is so that we could serve in the spirit. Now beginning in verse 7, Paul is going to talk about his own experience. Now let's stop and talk about Paul's life for a minute. We know a little bit about him. We know the things that he tells us about himself uh, related to his um, uh, religious experience. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, which means he was a political, political guy, political appointee. We know that he was circumcised the eighth day. We know that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, that means he was the, the strictest keeper of the law that you could ever find, meaning the law of Moses. He wouldn't break the law of Moses for anything. We know that he stood by and kept the coats of those that stoned Stephen when Stephen was uh, preaching about Jesus and the crowd rushed on him and gnashed on him with, his teeth, with their teeth and, uh, and then stoned him to death. We know that he was standing, Paul was standing there when Stephen cried out that he saw heavens opened and he saw the, Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. We know that Paul witnessed Stephen laying down and going to sleep. The Bible says that he went to sleep even though he's stoned uh, with the intent of stoning him to death. The Bible says he gave up the ghost and went to sleep. Now that has to mean something other than and the stones killed him. There had to be a supernatural aspect of him just departing, the spirit departing from his body rather than the, the normal stoning that these guys were accustomed to and, and participated in probably many times before. We know that in chapter 9 of verse 1 of Acts, the Bible says that following Stephen's death, that seemed to give uh, Paul, who was called Saul at the time, even more incentive to, to threaten the church. It says he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. In other words, he's threatening the church and murdering. That's what slaughter means. It means murdering. So on the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus. You remember the light shined around about him brighter than the noonday sun? He fell off the animal he was riding. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And, Jesus, and Paul asked two questions. He said, who art thou, Lord? First thing he asked was, who art thou, Lord? Who are you, Lord? I don't know who you are. I'm looking for your name, but I know you're Lord. You've proven that just by the light and the, me falling down and everything that's happening here. That's all it took to convince Paul. Now, Paul must have been in his early 30s, perhaps. So however many years that is of religious training, decades, was undone by one split-second experience. Folks, we need to realize God can reach people a lot easier than we can by preaching. We need to trust him to reach people in the way that, that, that um, is most effective. So Paul said, Who art thou, Lord? Jesus answered and said, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Paul's second question is, What would you have me to do? Those two questions govern the rest of Paul's life. Who are you, Lord, and what do you have me to do? 
Now, it's interesting because Paul, who was schooled in the word, he had the same, tra- uh, same training and schooling as the, the high priest and any and all of the other rabbis. He didn't ask anything about the law. He didn't ask Jesus about how am I doing keeping the law? Is there anything that I need to shore up on? The reason for that is because he met a person, not a commandment. Jesus told him to go into the city and it should be told him what he should do then. Some days later, Ananias comes to him. Ananias appears to Paul and says, Saul, even brother Saul, called him brother Saul. We know he was saved because he called him brother. He said, brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, whom thou met in the way, has sent me for two things, that thou mayest receive thy sight, number one, and secondly, that thou mayest be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit and received his sight. Scales fell off of his eyes and he received his sight. Now, what does Paul do? Immediately after this experience, the Bible says he goes into the synagogue and starts testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, what about his rabbinical training? What about his um, commitment to keep the laws of God? What about his zeal for keeping the commandments, the law of Moses? What about all those things? None of those things mattered, folks. And the reason they didn't matter is because he met a person. And that person, the meeting of that person governed the rest of his life, as it should us. Now, things didn't go too well for him then because he comes back to Jerusalem and then winds up having to flee for his life. Because the Jews who have just tapped this guy as the number one assassin, the ninja rabbi, to go kill the other Christians in Damascus and other places that he finds them, now he's out there preaching Jesus. And that's the the message that they're trying to stop. So they come up with a plot to kill him, and he has to leave town. Now, we don't know exactly how long he was gone. The Bible says it's a little blind to us the way that it reads because it says after three years he goes into Arabia. A lot of people says, say that he went into Arabia and stayed there for three years, but that's not really what the Bible says. It says after three years he went into Arabia, and the reality is we don't know how long he stayed there. It's possible that he was there for three years. It's also possible that there was a three-year gap that we don't know where he was, and then he went into Arabia for some undisclosed or unknown period of time. We don't know. But apparently, it was out there that Jesus appeared to him and gave him what we know of as the revelation that Paul refers to as his gospel that he says the whole world is going to be judged by. Now, what happens in that interim period of time? What happens from the time that Paul starts preaching in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God to when he has to run for his life to when he gets the revelation of who we are in Christ? What happens in that period of time? He comes to the same realization that every other Christian comes to, and that is being saved, forgiven of your sins, justified and made righteous doesn't mean you have power over your flesh. So Paul is going to tell them his experience Now, we have to assume that this is a common part of Paul's preaching. There's no reason that Paul would tell the Romans this and not tell the Galatians this. There's no reason that he wouldn't tell the Ephesians this. There's no reason that he wouldn't tell everybody this, that he went to and preached and stayed for any period of time. Maybe not the first time that he preached in a city, but over any period of time, he would have to share these things because the people that are getting saved have to come or need to come to this revelation that he received so that they can walk in victory. But this revelation of how he came to realize how he came to to understand how to have victory over the flesh is the very thing that he was slandered about throughout the world. Because it sounds like, to the casual hearer, it sounds like Paul is saying, don't worry about sin, just live in all the sin you want to. Righteousness will make up for it. 
And that's not what he was saying. That's why we do have letters written to the Galatians, for example, where he says, should we sin that grace should abound even more? And he says, no, that's not how it works. But that's what people would preach or say that Paul was preaching. So Paul's going to tell us and tell them what his experience was, how he came to realize two things. Number one, that he was dead to sin. And secondly, that he was dead to the law. He didn't know those things when he had this experience that he's going to relate to us in chapter 7. It was the process of coming to realize these things that enabled him to walk in deliverance, to walk in victory over his flesh. And if you and I don't understand and come to the realization of the same thing that he did, we're never going to gain victory over our flesh either, which most Christians never do. Now, if we don't, if we don't take the time to understand it and, and walk in it and to appropriate it into our lives, then we're going to be left with a perversion of the gospel which amounts to I'm just going to keep sinning and being forgiven day after day after day until I die here on this earth. And nothing could be further from the truth, folks. If that's the way that it works, then Jesus died in vain. If that's the way that it works, then Paul's gospel is a lie. That's not the way it works. Here's how it works instead. Verse 7. Paul said, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now, he's saying this to the Jews. He's writing this to the Jews, knowing what their argument's going to be. Their argument is, if you said we're dead to sin, and now you're saying that we are dead or died under the law, you're equating the law with sin. So Paul answers that. Is the law sin? No. God forbid. He said, I had not known sin, but by the law. Now, here's the first thing that Paul comes to an understanding of. The first revelation Paul gets about the law is that, while he was operating according to the law, while he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee and persecuting the church, he thought the keeping of the law was what pleased God. He's now come to realize that the law has one and only one purpose, and that is to reveal sin. That's it. Folks, can I suggest that you accept that as the truth up front so that you quit looking for the law to do something else for you? That's all it can do is reveal sin. It doesn't create sin. But it reveals sin. For I, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust. Literally desire. is the word desire that's, uh, that's talked about or translated covet. In the Old Testament and the law of Moses. I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust or desire. Except the law had said thou shalt not covet. But sin taking occasion by the commandment. Notice it's not the commandment that's evil, it's sin that's evil. Now notice how sin works. Sin uses the law to deceive you. Sin uses some principle of here's what you should do to be right with God to deceive you. And folks, sin never grows old. Sin operates the same way now as it did with Paul. Sin will always operate the same way. Sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence for without the law, sin was dead. In other words, it's like this. It's like if you get in a car that can go really, really fast and you're on an open stretch of road that has no speed limit signs, what are you going to do? You're going to go as fast as that little car will go. You're going to try to milk everything you can out of it. But what if all of a sudden you come up on a little, little bump in the road here and it's, look off to the right and it says speed limit, 50 miles an hour. Now, immediately, you start looking around. Then if you go down the road a little bit further, a couple of hundred feet further, and it says stri speed strictly enforced, now you're really looking around. 
Now, did the speed limit sign make you speed? Did it create the speed that you're going? No, it just revealed what the law was. So now you've got two things in play. Now you've got a desire to go fast as that car will go. And secondly, you've got a sense of rebellion because you know you're not supposed to. Now here's how it works with people that are in the flesh, people that are unsaved. They cannot tolerate legal restraint. You know how it's so common nowadays for people to say in the world, people involved in sin, well, you're just judging me. Where'd that come from? I mean, everybody says it. You're just judging me. Well, actually, you may not be judging the person, but you are judging the behavior. But why do they take the position that you're judging me? Because somebody that's doing wrong and everybody that's doing wrong knows in their conscience that they are doing wrong cannot stand to have the light shown on the wrong that they're doing. I mean, we're saved and we don't like it. But the unsaved just go bananas. That's why you talk about homosexuality and, and, and the gay community comes unwrapped. And now all of a sudden they're supposed to know how the church is, is supposed to be. They're the authorities on how the church is supposed to be tolerant and so forth. And if a Christian isn't tolerant, then we've got to do away with their brand of Christianity. Why? Because the unsaved cannot stand to be told that what they're doing is wrong. Legal restraint is outside their realm of acceptance. So what do you do? You got to do away with the law. But does the law, does the knowledge of sin create the sin? Never. It just shows it up. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I didn't know sin except by the commandment. I was doing the same stuff as I was before, but I didn't know it was wrong, so I didn't have anything to to have a, a, a wounded conscience about. I didn't have anything that shined the light on what I was doing. There was no way for sin to get at my conscience because there was nothing that told me right from wrong. That's why he says in verse 9, For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now this is talking about a principle that applies to every human being on the earth. And that is, we start off here on the earth as children, babies, children, alive unto God. Now, what causes, we're all born into death, but what causes us to die spiritually? There comes a point in time in every person's life where they know the difference between right and wrong. That's when the commandment comes. Now, it can be the the preaching of the commandment. It can be the reading of the Ten Commandments, or it can just be your own conscience that tells you right from wrong. Because remember, Paul has already identified that the Gentiles who did not have the law of Moses had a law unto God that was the law of their conscience. So everybody has that. And at the point that we come to the place where we know the difference between right and wrong, that's when we have a choice to do right or to do wrong. And, of course, nobody can do right in and of themselves. They don't have the power in their own flesh. So everybody dies spiritually at that point. Now, what point is that? Well, for me, it was just between my sixth and my seventh uh, years. I was just a few days before seven years old. I remember it very, very well. I remember I'd been hearing about Jesus from my mom. But all of a sudden, the thought came to me that I needed to do something about making Jesus the Lord of my life. And it scared me. I didn't know what to do. It was just, I didn't know it then, but it was the Holy Spirit talking to me from my heart. I had to be alive unto God because I was hearing from the Holy Spirit. And so I didn't know what to do. And so I didn't do anything. And by default, 
the light went out. By my lack of action, I didn't rebel against God. I didn't say, no, I don't want Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I didn't do any of those kind of things. I just did not take action based on the leading of the Holy Spirit. I could have at least gone and asked my mom and say, Mom, what what does it mean to do this or or something? Which I wound up doing a couple of weeks later. Now, when she shared with me about how to get saved and she knelt down with me by the foot of my bed and we prayed and I asked Jesus to come in my heart, that light that went out two weeks earlier had come back on. I remember it very clearly. I've spent two weeks unsaved in my life. Wish I could say that it was only two weeks that I've spent in my life doing the wrong things. But that's what Paul's talking about. Well, what was it? it? For me, it was the knowledge of Jesus and the need to make him the Lord of my life. Paul's talking about something very similar. He says, for I was alive without the law once. Why? Because my conscience didn't smite me. My conscience didn't give me any problems about what I was doing, whatever I was doing. But when the commandment came and I knew the difference between right and wrong, sin revived and I died. Sin wasn't created then. It was just shown up in my life to be sin. And I died, meaning died spiritually. And the commandment, which was given by God, which was ordained to life. God gave the commandments designed for life. Now, that doesn't mean that would bring life in and of themselves, but at the very least, it would show us our need for a Savior. It would show us our powerlessness against sin and our need for a Savior. But Paul said, that which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Now, why? Because I didn't have any power to keep it. I didn't have any power to obey the commandment. For sin taking occasion by the commandment. Notice sin is the evil, not the commandment. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. How did sin deceive Paul and how does sin deceive you? Folks, it's very simple. Sin gives you the idea that you can overcome your flesh if you're just good enough. That's the deception of sin. The reality is you're powerless over sin without somebody to deliver you. The reality is you need a deliverer, you need a redeemer. Everybody does. That's why preaching the gospel is so important because unless somebody knows they need a savior, many people aren't looking for one. But when the knowledge of the truth comes, then the Holy Spirit starts convicting us, starts speaking to our hearts, working on us from the inside in some way or another that says what you're hearing, the word of God that you're hearing is true. You need to make a choice for Jesus. Notice the Holy Spirit never says you need to live right. Any of you ever had the Holy Spirit say you need to live right? No, and you never will. You know why? Because you can't. That's Paul's whole point here. That's why it's important to know that you're not only dead to sin, that you died to sin through Jesus, but you also died to the law. You died to any law. You died to every law. There is no law that you're under that you have to do right by in and of yourself. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is made good, which is good, made death unto me? God forbid. In other words, he's saying there's not a problem with the law. Remember, he's talking to the Jews particularly. The Jews love the law. The Jews have more respect for the law. The Jewish Christians have more respect for the law than they do Jesus. So he's not speaking against the law. He said the law is holy. Was then that which 
was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin. Sin's the problem. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. In other words, he's saying sin multiplies when you know the difference between right and wrong. Our idea, human thinking, is the more we learn about what's right, the better we'll be. The better we'll be able to live. The better we'll be able to act and behave. And the exact opposite is true. The more you learn about the laws of God, and remember, he's talking about the law of Moses, there were 630 commandments. Now, you tell me, was it good for them to know all 630 or just to know one? They would have been better off knowing one because knowing the one would have caused them to realize they're powerless to keep even one. If they're powerless to keep one, what are they going to do with the other 629? Now, it doesn't matter if you break one or break 630. Breaking one is breaking the whole of the law. But for most people, they were proficient in breaking 630 commandments. And just when they think they're, they've got one whip, they find out about another one. And they think, oh, gosh, I've been doing that too. That's what Paul's talking about. The more you learn about the law, the more sinful you will become. The more your conscience will smite you or work against you. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Now, what does Paul mean carnal? He's not talking about unsaved. He's talking about his condition after he was born again justified by the blood of jesus made righteous by the sacrifice of jesus on the cross he's saying i'm still body ruled i'm saved i know i'm supposed to be righteous i know that i'm supposed to be dead to sin i know i'm supposed to be dead to the law but i'm still ruled by my body now i know none of you have found this to be true in your lives because when you got saved you had instant victory over every area of your flesh right folks here's the issue The first thing that we need to tell new believers is they've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. The second thing we need to tell believers, new believers, is that they're still going to have a problem with their flesh. Because most of the time that second part is left out and they discover it on their own and think something's wrong with me. I know dear sister Susie over there, the dear saint of God, doesn't have these kind of problems. Pastor Jim doesn't have that kind of problem. And we leave it unsaid... And let everybody figure it out on their own, run into the wall, going 90 miles an hour, right in the middle of their joy that Jesus has saved them and delivered them from sin. They find out how powerless from sin they really are. And it's not an uncommon thing to have an unsaved friend that will point it out for you. Then you think you've done even worse because now you're a terrible witness for Jesus. We might as well end it all now. Now, what is that? That's sin deceiving you. How did sin deceive you? Sin deceived you by letting you think to begin with you weren't going to have a problem with your flesh. Well, you are. You will never come to the place where you don't have a problem with your flesh. That's why the redemption of the body is a part of the the, the second coming of Jesus. It's a part of the finished work of, of redemption. Won't it be great to come to the place where we have a redeemed body? Be careful that you don't look forward to that too much. Because if you really look forward to that too much, that might be an indication that you don't understand that you're really dead to the law. See, if you're really dead to the law, what difference does a redeemed body make? 
Oh, but Pastor Mike, I don't want to commit sin. I understand that. Paul was in that same boat when he was still committing sin. Let's keep reading. Paul said again in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, that means holy and righteous, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, he's not talking about when he was unsaved. He's talking about after he was born again. And Paul uses the word I in some different ways here. So you've got to really keep up with and read closely the context of what he's saying. He's saying I am carnal. He doesn't mean the I on the inside, the man on the inside. He means the whole of me, the saved one, the righteous one on the inside, still doing sinful things on the outside. I am carnal. Now, the fact that he talks about spiritual versus carnal means that carnal is not a condition that God expects you to stay in. It's something that can be changed and should be. So he says, I'm carnal, sold under sin. Again, he's talking about his condition, saved but powerless to overcome sin in his flesh. For that which I would do, or that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, the word would literally means want to. It's easier to to translate it want to. Paul says, for that which I would, or that which I do, I allow not, I don't want to do. For what I want to do, that I do not. But what I hate, that's what I'm doing. That may be a little confusing the way that it's written, but you understand what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not doing the things I want to do. I'm doing the things that I don't want to do. Now, who's I? The man on the inside. The man on the inside. He's saying the man on the inside doesn't want to do the things that the man on the outside is doing. And the things the man on the inside wants to do, the man on the outside won't do. Refuses to do. If then, here's his next revelation. Verse 16, if then I do that which I would not, that which I don't want to do. In other words, he's saying, if my flesh does what the man on the inside doesn't want to do, then I consent, I, the man on the inside, consent under the law that it is good. In other words, he's saying, one of the first things he found out and one of the first things you need to find out is the difference between the man on the inside and the man on the outside. If the man on the inside wants to do what's right, that means you're following after God from your heart. Not with your flesh, but from your heart. Paul takes comfort in that. Most people say, well, yeah, but that doesn't count. That counts hugely. That's one of the first things you need to understand so that you can finally gain victory over your flesh. The man on the inside wants to do right. What does that mean? That means the man on the inside is righteous in the sight of God. That means the man on the inside is possessed of the Holy Ghost. The unsaved don't want to do right from the inside. The unsaved want to do wrong from the outside, from the inside and the outside. That's a huge change. Huge. So he said, I consent. If then I do that which I, the man on the inside, doesn't want to do, the man on the inside, I consent under the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I, the man on the inside, that does this stuff in my flesh. Here's the next revelation he receives. Can I ask you a question? How did Paul find this stuff out? I would submit to you, and some people will say, well, you know, Paul's revelation, he said Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus taught him the things that he taught us. If Jesus taught him all this stuff, why is he struggling? See, the very fact that he's saying that there's a difference between what the man on the inside wants to do and the man on the outside wants to do, it tells us, shows us very specifically that there is a struggle going on. And part of that struggle is because of the lack of knowledge that he has just declared to them in the first six verses, that we're dead to sin and dead to the law. He didn't know that. 
He found that out the same way you and I found out or supposed to find out. And that is through examination and through prayer. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't even take the word to find out what experience Paul gained. And so they don't learn from his experience. But that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to learn what he learned the hard way. Don't learn it the hard way. Learn it the easy way or easier. We're all down, we've all traveled down that road to some degree, I'm sure. But we don't have to go the full length of the road like he did. So he said, now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now here's the next revelation or a continuation of the revelation that we began just a moment ago. And that is, if the man on the inside doesn't want to do what the stuff on the, the man on the outside is doing, then it's not me, the real me, that's doing it. Now, if it's not me that's doing it, who's doing it? Well, me is the man on the inside. Me is not the man on the outside. The man on the outside is not me. He's not born again. So what is it that's doing wrong? It's sin that still dwells in me, meaning my flesh. See, folks, your flesh still has the experience of sin from when you were unsaved. And it will have until Jesus comes back. Now, there's a couple of ways you can approach that. You can say, well, woe is me. I'm just stuck with this. I'll have to keep committing the same sin over and over again every day until I die and I'm wearing out my forgiver. I'm asking for forgiveness every day. And I just get so down. After a while, you know, you get down on yourself even though you are asking God to forgive you. Is that what God has planned? No. Now then it is no more I that do it, the man on the inside, but it's sin that dwelleth in me on the outside. For I know that in me that is in my flesh. Now here he qualifies and identifies who the me is. That is in my flesh. I know that in my flesh is no good thing, dwelleth no good thing. My flesh doesn't want to do right. Here's a revelation that you need to accept, folks. Your flesh is never going to do the right thing. That doesn't mean it can't be trained to do the right thing, but it'll never want to. Because the life of God is not in your flesh as far as your desires are concerned. And never will be. I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good I find not in my flesh. In other words he's saying I will or want to do the right thing from the inside. But the ability to perform that good work or that which I will to do from the inside is not present in my flesh and never will be. Never will be. Now, this may not sound like good news, folks, but we're headed for some. See, some people will look at this and say, well, we might as well give up then. If it's going to be this way until we die, what hope do we have? Well, there is hope. Paul's not finished with his discovery yet. For the good that I want to do, I do not. I on the inside, man on the inside, can't control the man on the outside. But the evil which I don't want to do, that's what I do. You ever been in a situation or, or had a good friend or loved one or perhaps somebody that after something was over, you asked them or they asked themselves, what was I thinking? Why do people do things that destroy their lives? Folks, I've come to the realization that there is no explanation for a lot of the things that some people do. Just none. It doesn't make sense. They won't even be able to explain it to you after it's over. Why do they do it? 
The answer is very simple. Saved or unsaved? The answer is, well, for the saved the individual, the answer is very clear and spoken of in the Scripture, and that is the man on the inside didn't have power over the man on the outside. Just simple. Now, for the unsaved, they didn't want to from the inside, and so they just did what the man on the inside wanted to do in the flesh. But even then, a lot of times it doesn't make sense. So Paul says, now, if I do that which I don't want to do, it is no more I that doeth it. But sin that dwelleth in me. Again, notice Paul's revelation, Paul's discovery. There's a difference between the man on the outside, I'm sorry, the man on the inside, the man that's born again by the blood of Jesus, and the sin that dwells in the flesh. It doesn't mean that we have two natures. You don't have a dual nature. Don't get caught up in that phraseology. Man does not have a dual nature. He has one nature if he's born again, and that's the nature of God. But there is still the experience of sin in the flesh. And that experience, that training from the unrenewed mind and the experience that we had before we were born again or just the spirit of the world that's in operation around us will pull us off into wrong things unless we learn how to be delivered from it. Now, Paul hadn't got there. He's still on his road to discovery. But he's telling us, here's how I came to understand. Here's how I came to walk in victory. I find then a law, verse 21, I find then a law. Now, what's a law? A law is a set of principles. He says, here's how the principle works. I find then a law that when I want to do good, evil is present with me. Now, a law means it's going to be this way forever. Every time that I want to do good from the inside, there's going to be evil present with my flesh, with or in my flesh that wants to go the other way. We've all found that conflict, haven't we? So Paul said, I've come to realize that's just the way it is. It's not that way with me because I'm a bad Christian. It's not that way with me because I'm especially unworthy. It's that way with everybody. This is the way it works. We don't have redeemed bodies. We have redeemed spirits, born-again spirits. We have the ability to renew our minds, but our bodies are going to have to be dealt with a totally and completely different way because it's always going to want to be in rebellion. Man, if you, don't, if you don't know how that works, just tell yourself you're going to pray tomorrow for an hour before you go to work. Set your alarm and see how fast you slap that thing across the room. Anytime you make plans to pray, to do something good, do something spiritual, anytime you make plans to pray, you'll start praying, you'll say, Heavenly Father, and then immediately you'll think of 32 things you need to be doing instead. Now, if you sit down and watch TV, you don't think about all those things you ought to be doing instead. There's something about the man on the inside wanting to do the right thing that stirs up the, the sin that dwells in our flesh to resist it. Why? Because it's a law. The law is evil is ever present with you. And it is especially stirred up when the man on the inside wants to do right. That's what Paul is saying. I find in a law that when I would or want to do good, meaning from the inside, evil is present with me. For I delight. Notice that phrase, delight. He's gone from being forced to keep the law to delighting in the things of God. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. In other words, he's saying the inward man wants to do everything that's godly. The inward man wants to do everything that God did that Jesus showed us on the earth. The man on the inside wants to do everything that's pleasing unto the Father, which is operate by faith. The man on the inside always wants to do right. But I see another man or another law in my members. 
I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. This word mind means the inner man. Now, he's talking about the man that's renewing his mind to the word and trying to, to direct his will toward doing the things of God, which is part of the inward man. But he's talking about the man on the inside. For I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind or the inner man and bringing me, talking about the whole man, into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. In other words, he's saying, I've discovered that it's always going to be this way. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul is still um, being conquered or, or controlled by his flesh at the time that he writes this. He's saying, this is what I discovered in my journey, my Christian journey, on how to walk in victory. And I'm trying to tell you what it means to be dead unto sin and dead unto the law. How to live in victory over your flesh too. But at the point that he comes to the discovery of this law of sin in his members that's there and stirred up, especially when the man on the inside wants to do good, notice the conclusion he comes to. He comes to the conclusion in verse 24, O wretched man that I am. The word wretched is interesting because it means exhausted by hard labor. I'm trying. I've tried. I've done everything I know to do. And I'm left exhausted, worn out, and still incomplete. O wretched man that I am. Notice the next thing he says. I'm helpless. I'm powerless. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now, what, the, what is the body of this death he's talking about? He's not talking about the flesh. He's talking about the law of sin or the, the evil that's in his members, in his, in, his, uh, uh, in his body. He's not talking about Jesus coming back and giving us a redeemed body. He's saying that there's only one way, there's only one answer for overcoming the flesh. And it's not wanting to do well enough or right or good enough from the inside. It's not trying to exercise some kind of physical power or strength or will over my flesh. Because no matter how much I want to, the man on the outside wants to do the wrong thing even worse. And here's a law in my members. This is the way that it's always going to be. Until Jesus comes and gives us a redeemed body, it's always going to be this way. So then what is the answer? Well, let's ask the other way. What isn't the answer? You trying. You trying to control your flesh. Now, if we stop right there and don't finish this up, then you would go away saying the same thing that a lot of the people said in Paul's day about him. Paul's saying, don't even try to keep your flesh under control. But we know that's not true. Paul said of himself, I keep the body under. I keep under my body. So he learned how. He went on to say, I keep under my body, lest after having preached to others, I myself might be a castaway. Well, what's he preaching to others? For them to keep their body under too. But it was spoken of throughout that part of the world about Paul that his preaching was, there is no such thing as sin. There is no need to keep the body under or try to avoid sin. Now, that's what keeping the law was all about. Keeping the law of Moses was about avoiding sin. And even though nobody was able to effectively keep the law in every area and every aspect, they, those that would pride themselves as being doers of the law would justify their own wrongdoing as not being as bad as other people's wrongdoing. And that's what Paul was doing and the reason why he was trying to kill the church. I'm pleasing God and they're not. So we'll just kill them. Well, I don't know how he did away with the, the commandment, thou shalt not murder. But some way or another, they had it justified just like everybody does now that tries to live according to their flesh. But folks, you know as well as I do, that's a hard way to try to live. 
It's frustrating. It's futile. And it's depressing. So Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, I've given it my best shot. Now, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, zealous of the law above every Jew that's out there, every keeper of the law of Moses out there, and I have worn myself silly, exhausted myself, trying to conquer my flesh. Oh, wretched man that I am, I need somebody to help me. Notice he does not say he's not calling out for a release from judgment for his wrongdoing. He's not calling out for God to pardon him for the sins that he's committed from his flesh. He's looking for one and only one thing, and that is deliverance from the body of this death. Notice what he calls the experience of sin in our flesh, the body of this death. What this death is he talking about? He's not talking about spiritual death. What this death does he mean? The evil that operates in our flesh that's there for all of us. No matter how saved we are, no matter how, much, how long we've been saved, no matter how long we pray in tongues every day, no matter whatever else we do, it's there for everybody. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He's looking for help. He's looking for help. And folks, this is the answer to how to overcome your flesh. I thank God through, notice not by, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is telling us something right here that's different than anything else he said. He said, we died to sin by the blood of Jesus. He said, we died to the law by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Now he's saying that we're delivered not by, but through Jesus our Lord. The word through references identification. In other words, Paul is going to tell us, and that's what chapter 8 is all about particularly, all the way through chapter 12. He's going to tell us, here's the answer. The answer is, we are risen with Christ Jesus. Therefore, I can't do right in my own flesh. I can only do right by allowing the Holy Spirit to work through me. The actions of the flesh under the law are replaced by following or walking in the Spirit. And that's the only way that it works. That's the only way that it works. That's the only way that it works. It's not about judgment. It's not about condemnation because those things have been taken away by the sacrifice of Jesus. It's about identifying with the, blood, with the sacrifice, with the bloodshed of Jesus Christ who causes us to be dead to sin and dead to the law. See, as a Christian, if I commit sin, that doesn't mean that I did the right thing by any means, but it means that I'm not under the law that kept me doing the wrong thing. That's why he starts off in chapter 8 saying, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Folks, this is hard for people to understand without meditating on and identifying with the sacrifice of Jesus. His death is their death. But the fact is very simply this. God doesn't hold anything against you for what you do in the flesh. Now, not everything that we do, not every sin is, is fleshly sin. Paul said some things are spiritual. Some sins are spiritual and some sins are physical. But God won't judge you for physical sins. That's where the freedom in Christ Jesus comes. Not freedom to serve the flesh. Freedom to serve God. Is this making any sense? This is like pouring water over cracked concrete. You hope a little bit dribbles through the cracks. But most of it runs off. I understand. I get it. But these are scriptures and these are chapters that you need to meditate on until you get it, until you get it, until you get it. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank my God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, deliverance comes one and only one way, and that is identifying in Jesus. You know the happiest day of your life as a Christian? I'm not talking about when you got saved. But the happiest day of your life living as a Christian will be when you realize that you are dead with Christ, risen with him at the right hand of God the Father, not held under any bondage to any law because you're dead to the law, and have the freedom to serve God by faith. When you realize that's it, that's who you are, and that's all you'll ever be, then the condemnation of the enemy falls on deaf ears. When the devil comes and says, oh, you did the wrong thing, you need to ask, who? Well, you did. Now, the man on the inside wanted to do right all along. Well, you did it in your flesh, though. You allowed it to happen. Now, Mr. Devil, you're the one that caused this evil and sin in the flesh situation to occur, not me. I wanted to do right from the inside. Now, I did wrong, but I asked God to forgive me for it. It was just an act of my flesh, not a desire of my heart. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. When you realize that, you create a barrier and a shield around you. Literally, the word does. But your acceptance by faith of what the word says creates an impenetrable barrier. And the devil can't get through. That's why Paul starts off in chapter 8 saying, There's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. He's talking about to those that discovered the same thing he discovered, those that applied the same deliverance that he applied. What is that deliverance? Identification with Jesus. Identification with Jesus. When the devil comes and says, you did the wrong thing, wrong according to who? I'm not under any law. I died with Jesus and I died under the law to bring forth fruits under righteousness, but those fruits are coming from my heart, not from my flesh. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, the inner man, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, there are going to be times where my flesh serves the law of sin. Notice chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. Where's the deliverance? The deliverance is in the realization that God looks on the heart. There's a scripture in the Old Testament that says God knows man is made of dust. I remind God of that a lot. Lord, you remember I was made of dust, don't you? You know there's nothing in me that is in my flesh that can do good or do right. But I delight in the law of God. I serve God with my spirit. And that's all he requires. That's all he requires. And the more you do that, The more you gain knowledge about that, the more you meditate on that, the more that soaks in to your understanding and your consciousness. Sin in the flesh, evil in the flesh never is done away with, but it loses its power. It loses its grip because the man on the inside is who you are, not the flesh, not the deeds of the flesh. You will never be the deeds of your body, never again. That's who you were under Adam, but you died under Adam when Jesus died on the cross. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the, law, with the mind, the inner man, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Notice that serving or keeping the law of God is from the inward man and not from the outward man. You are free in your relationship with sin 
and the law has been destroyed so that you can be married to another, so that you can be joined to the risen Christ. Folks, remember, Jesus doesn't have a problem with sin. And the reason he doesn't have a problem with sin is not because he has a redeemed body. It's because he is the righteousness of God, just like you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. I pray, Lord, that these things would sink into our hearts, that you would make them real to us and cause us to see how we can operate in these things. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that through identification with you and your death and your sacrifice, we are delivered from the power and the effect of sin in the flesh. Thank you, Lord, that we delight in you after the inward man, and we serve you from our hearts, from our spirits. We serve you and serve the law of God which is the law of love. Thank you, Father, that that love is shed abroad in our hearts. Thank you that that's who we walk in. We walk in love and walk in the Spirit of God. And therefore, there is no condemnation and never will be any condemnation to us because we're in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the reality of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.